Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Taylor, Taylor Ray to the Philacrosophy podcast. Taylor is the head lacrosse coach at St. Joe's and the defensive coordinator for Team Canada. Taylor, how's it going, man? It's going real well. Thank you for, uh, for having me on the podcast. Excited to uh, talk some shop with you. Yeah, me too. So um, I usually get started by um, listening to folks talk about their lacrosse journey and their mentors and some of the memorable things and stories that happened. And I would love to start there with you. Um, sounds good. So yeah, my, my uh, lacrosse journey is an interesting one. Certainly uh, not your not your typical one for a college lacrosse coach, but I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Um, started uh, playing lacrosse in in third grade. Uh, some some friends of mine who were hockey players would play lacrosse in the summer months once the uh, the ice came out of the rinks. So uh, they said it's a great game. You should come and check it out. And I did, and fell in love pretty quickly. Um, the uh, obviously growing up in Canada, you played almost exclusively box lacrosse until late in, late in my high school years. There was a, a group in Edmonton, the Edmonton Miners, led by a, a great coach named uh, A.J. Joma, who also coached the Edmonton Miners uh, uh, box lacrosse team that I played for. And he put together a travel club each spring that went down to the U.S. Uh, for about a week playing some some field lacrosse, although at that point, I think we were pretty much playing box lacrosse on a field, yeah. um, you know, but uh, that's where I started to learn the, uh, the field game through, uh, through the, through the travel club. And, you know, to be honest, that was probably back in the, uh, you know, early nineties, mid nineties. And there weren't a lot of, there weren't a lot of, you know, travel programs uh, right. in Canada at all. Most of the players who had been, recruited to go down to the U.S. were uh, 
were recruited on their on their box lacrosse skills almost entirely. And uh, uh, being from Alberta, there was starting to be some players who were who were getting recruited to play lacrosse down at the uh, down at the Division One level. And so that very quickly became a, a goal of mine. I wanted to do that. I wanted to try and play field lacrosse and, and get an education. And uh, I uh, had to make a difficult decision. I want to say when I was playing uh, midget lacrosse about missing some of our uh, our playoffs to go down to the U.S. and, and go to a, uh, uh, a recruiting tournament the summer before my senior year in college. And uh, I, I went to one one tournament. That was all that I could afford to to go to and again didn't want to miss any of the the box lacrosse because that was so important to me um but uh, i went to champ camp back in the yeah. summer of maybe 97 and it was still at hopkins back then there were only only 16 teams at the tournament almost all of them were the uh the mia teams from the baltimore uh, baltimore area and then there were a few teams from, you know, other places, maybe a team or two from New Jersey or New York. And then I got placed on a team called Team USA, which was a, uh, uh, a, a mishmash of players from all of the different states that did not have travel programs. So there was me and a friend of mine, uh, Peter Goot, who also went on to play college lacrosse and uh, um, professional lacrosse and uh, kids from kids from Tennessee, North Carolina, Texas, and, uh, you know, you play in whatever, three games a day for the, for the three or four day tournament was uh, a fun experience for me. Uh, I, I played pretty well in a couple of the games, well enough in, in one game where coach Joe Alberici from Duke was there actually recruiting a player on the other team. Um, and at that point in time, I was playing attack. So I, uh, was playing attack, riding, uh, riding my butt off and scoring some goals here or there. And uh, Coach Alvarisi came up to me after the game and said, uh, you know, you, you had a great game out there. You know, first question he asked me was, uh, was how are your grades? I said, pretty good. You know, I got an 80% average, which was uh, an A at that time in Alberta. And he kind of looked at me like, okay. And he said, have you, have you taken any tests? I told him, nope. But I, but I was planning to this fall. And then he said, do you know where, do you know where Duke is? And I said, nope, no idea. <laughs> um, so I was pretty naive to the whole process and, you know, to the, you know, differences between different, uh, you know, places of higher, higher education. And I had had a couple guys from my, my minors team and Team Alberta that had gone down to play at uh, Radford University um, in Virginia. And so when it, when it all came down to it, my, my final decision was between Duke and Radford. Nice. And Radford was my first Division One win, by the way. Were they really? Yeah, 1999. Yeah, that was, you know, right around that same time. Yeah. I, uh, to me, they were the same. You know, they were a school in the U.S. They were Division One, and yep. uh, you know, you could uh, you could you could play at at the highest level there. The difference a lot more was Canadians was, at Radford. There was exactly there's more Canadians there, so I felt like I'd be a little more comfortable there, knowing somebody going down. But I started to do some research and learn about the the opportunity it would be to go to Duke, and uh, you know, went down for my official visit in the December of of uh, December of '98 uh and and committed to go to duke 
spring of my senior year in the, the spring of, uh, yeah, spring of 99. And then, uh, um, you know, I, I had played that summer. I was playing with the Canadian under 19 national team in Adelaide, Australia, which was oh, wow. a really cool experience. I, uh, there were a couple of Duke guys playing on that team at the time. Uh, Michael Ferrari was a sophomore at Duke who was playing on that team. And Kevin Cassis, who was uh, the same age as me, a senior in high school, was playing on that team. And obviously a very highly touted player coming out of uh, Comsawag High School in Long Island. So uh, I was excited to get to Australia to meet a future teammate of mine. And uh, my, my dad came along on the trip. Uh, and it just so happened in the small world that uh, lacrosse sometimes ends up ends up being. My dad uh, met Kevin's father, Tom Cassis, who was a football player like my father was. And it turns out that they actually played together for a season in the Canadian Football League no way. Uh, for the for the BC Lions. So it was funny for them to catch up after having not seen each other in 20, 20 plus years and seeing their kids playing against each other on the Canadian team and the, and the U S team. But, uh, Amazing. um, yeah, I remember seeing you and your brother Devin, um, on these like little, I get letters from some recruiting service that you must've signed up for. And I remember seeing Taylor Ray and Devin Ray, and I'm pretty sure I called you guys, if not definitely Devin, I'm not sure if I called you and Devin, I can't remember, but, um, it's, it's uh, kind of bringing it all back to me right now. Yeah, it was, uh, there was a few schools. I, I mean, I, I, one of my U19 teammates, AJ Shannon, was going to UVA, and there really hadn't been a huge influx of Canadians. You were recruiting some guys at, at DU, and they were having a lot of success there. Um, and so I got, I got a letter from Virginia, got a letter from Delaware, uh, Ohio State, and then, you know, the other schools that had seen me at the one tournament, so Washington and Lee and a few others. But yeah. it was getting so late uh that okay. i i only had the chance to, to to visit duke and and uh and had the relationship with radford so that's what it, that's what it came down to but worked out also um, really talk a little bit about your um i would love to hear about the uh burnaby lakers you were part of a dynasty with the uh, burnaby lakers but i don't know the whole story on that. so the the burnaby lakers uh was at that point in time they were the by far the most dominant uh, junior a program on the west coast they had been to i can't remember when i started there but i think they'd been to four or five mintos in a row um at that point in time there was no junior a lacrosse in alberta so this is again late 90s and so the best players from alberta were either going to ontario or british columbia to play to play junior and my brother had gone out to burnaby in 98 and he was a young guy on that team but uh you know they played in the Minto in 98 and won and then uh I joined the team in the summer of 2000 after my freshman year at uh, at Duke and that was really you know one of one of the, the the greatest experiences of my life playing with the Burnaby Lakers it was uh you know Paul, Paul Del Monte and Dave Locke ran that that club like like the the modern NLL teams are run. It was a well-oiled machine from the way that we practiced, the way that we trained, the competitiveness of the guys on the teams. Um, you know, I think we we won a Minto Cup in 2000 and had some awesome battles with Victoria. That was the next best uh, team out there. Every year we faced Victoria in the 
the, the British Columbia championship. And at that point, it was just the, the East and the West. So the BC winner and the Ontario winner played each other in a seven game series in the Minto. And, uh, you know, had, had so much fun living in Vancouver, you know, made some of the, the best friends that, uh, that uh, I have in my life and had some really, really incredible experiences. The, uh, uh, it's hard to put into words how important that lacrosse was to me at that time. I mean, it, it, I know, uh, like, pl playing at Duke, you wanted to win a national championship and an ACC championship. But for me at that time, winning a Minto Cup was every bit as important as those things. You know, it was uh, uh, an absolute... Uh, uh, goal every year. I played there for three years. We played in three Minto Cups. We won two. Um, had some great battles with the uh, St. Catharines team at the time that was was really an uh, amazing group as well. I, I want to say on, on uh, between the two teams playing in the Minto each year, if each team had, you know, 23 guys, uh, it was like 15 or 16 future NLL players on each team each year. Yeah, And so it was really, really talented group of players, talented group of athletes. I learned a tremendous amount just playing with those guys. And the, the competitiveness was, you know, as, as high as anything I've been a part of. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, met a lot of great people. That's where I met uh, Matt Brown, who's become one of my, uh, my closest friends and closest uh, friends in coaching. Um, so it's, uh, it was uh, just an awesome experience. Yeah. That is, that's really cool. I was, I'm psyched to hear about that. Um, I actually received, uh, an, I remember getting an email from a kid who was like, I'm a 17 year old. I led the junior A this year in hat tricks. I had 41 goals and whatever, 13 games or something like that. My name's Matt Brown. And um, that was really my start. I, I was trying to recruit a bunch of those St. Catharines guys. Actually, I tried to recruit Sean Greenhall and Craig Kahn. I did a camp over there and, and, uh, uh, Vink was there, um, and like all those guys came Mark, to Mark Steenhouse and Steenhouse. Billy D. Smith and uh, Billy D. Yeah, um, all those guys. But then, um, but it, I found it was really hard to get Ontario guys to want to go all the way to Denver, and it was easier. And so from there, it just turned into a pipeline with Brownie and and Jeff Snyder. You know, we had amazing success with a bunch of those guys. So it's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty cool to hear the story because I always watched those things from afar and knew who you were. Of course, then we played against you in 2003. It was like four degrees at Denver. And uh, your job was to shut off Brownie. And that was it was. Right? It was. I tied his point production in that game. I think we each had an assist. <laughs> uh, that was, that was, uh, those are good days. Um, so um, tell us a little bit more about your uh, times at Duke, if you would. Yeah. So my, uh, my Duke career was an interesting one. You know, recruited as a, you know, a big athletic attackman. Uh, finished my career as a defenseman, played, you know, a season of midfield, both offensive and defensive. Uh, my freshman year, I was just really learning how to play field lacrosse. And uh, obviously, Coach Pressler and Coach Albarisi, uh, you know, they, they, they recruited me more on my raw abilities than on my, uh, my skill abilities. And, uh, you know, as a as an offensive player growing up playing box lacrosse, I had good hands. I didn't have great hands, uh, but I had good hands compared to a lot of American field lacrosse players, and I was big and athletic. So they thought I'd be able to score some goals for them, which uh, didn't quite work out the way they probably planned or I planned. Um, 
So my freshman year, I played mid or attack. My sophomore year, I played almost exclusively midfield. We had an injury to a, a defensive midfielder uh, named Hunter Henry that year, who was an incredible athlete, incredible player. And so I stepped into his role and played a few games as a defensive midfielder and did a pretty good job. Um, I enjoyed playing defense. I think it suited my mentality uh, just in general. And uh, so I played sort of defensive midfield and a little bit of offensive midfield and like the second and third midfield lines there. And then the summer before my senior year, Coach Pressler asked me if I would pick up a pole for senior year. You know, we needed some, some more leadership at the defensive end and an experienced guy. So he asked me to, to pick up a pole. And I said, absolutely, whatever you need me to do. If you think I can help the team, I'll, I'll pick up a pole. So I played with a pole my senior year. That was the year we played you guys out in Denver. And I got the, uh, the job of shutting off this, uh, this big, big uh, inside guy for Denver who'd scored a bunch of goals. And, uh, and then sort of that's where I finished my career. I, I played, uh, played as a defensive player in the National Lacrosse League and uh, did that for nine years and uh, played with the Canadian national team as a defender in 2006 when we won the world championship. And um, so that, that sort of uh, became my role going from a, a score kind of growing up to a defensive role might seem a little awkward, but I was fine with it and uh, felt like I'd wish I'd made that transition sooner. It's, yeah. it's funny thinking back, you know, the very first field lacrosse camp I went to was run by uh, a guy named Warren Rendon and uh, he'd had some experience. He was a, a scout for, I think the Western hockey league and had been down in the U S and seen some field lacrosse, had a couple of guys go down and play uh, a few years earlier. And he said, I really think you should be a defenseman. I think it really suits you. And I said, no way. I want to score goals. I don't want to be just lumbering around, whacking and smashing into people. And, you know, uh, but he, he, uh, he knew better back then. And I almost wish I'd made that, uh, made that transition a little bit, bit earlier. It's so interesting to think about you as a goal scorer's mentality, box lacrosse skills, never picked up a pole until you were like 21. Mm -hmm. um, and yet you were able to make that transition quickly. And, and I'd like to hear a little bit about how quickly or how seamlessly, but, but generally I feel, I feel like your overall lacrosse skill and abilities was able to translate quickly. And I think that's an overlooked piece of when young defensemen are developing that having a goal scorer's skill set is part of what you really want to be able to have as a defensive player, even with a long pole. I agree with you 100%. I mean, we've, uh, you know, we've transitioned some guys from short sticks to long pole. And, and for the most part, when we've done it, the stick work, uh, it, it almost seems like it improves when they get the pole because, you know, they, uh, they feel comfortable moving that thing around compared to other defensemen who grew up doing defensive type of stick work drills. Right. So like the short stick, who's practiced, you know, is split dodging and face dodging and roll dodging and like rockering and question marking and just like handling the ball under pressure on the perimeter. You've yeah. built those skills. Well, when you pick up the pole, it doesn't feel any different. You know, your stick's just a little bit longer. Meanwhile, when you look at a lot of the drill work that the, the defensemen do as young players, it's, it tends to be pick up a ground ball, roll away from pressure, throw yeah. your overs. They're not getting as versed in the actual skilled part of the game. I think you see that a lot with Canadian defensemen. You know, most, pretty much every kid in Canada 
grows up with a short stick and then you pick up a pole. And it's one of the reasons why that's always been a strength for, for our teams. Well, while the inexperience playing the field game was certainly hurt us early in the, uh, you know, with our, with our national teams, the stick work and skill work with our defenseman was always a, was always a very positive part of the game. And so I definitely think that when you make the transition from playing with a short stick to a pole, it's much easier than, than, than going the other way. You know, if you asked a pole to pick up a short stick, they would, it would almost feel like a, a fish out of water. They don't know what to do with the, the short stick. They're almost more awkward than with the pole. Well, and also I think that, you know, the actual, the ability to play defense on ball and off ball is improved with more skill because it's leverage and it's, it's you know, like just the ability to move your stick. So, like you said, so many kids when they're young, they're just relegated to just being on defense while the coach is trying to run plays on offense. And they're just not really, you know, the examples of handling the ball that you were giving were, were, were right on the money, except for it's probably like 8% of practice that they're even doing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's totally true. Totally true. You, uh, it, <laughs> if you're a good defender with a short stick, you'll be an even better defender with a pole. Yeah. Um, if you're a good defender with a pole, you pick up a short stick and you're going to be an average defender at best. You know what I mean? The, the pole only enhances your defensive capabilities. Totally. I remember going to my very first junior A box game and it was the Ontario semifinals, Orangeville at St. Catharines in like the summer of 99. And there was a big 6'4 lefty playing the top center on the power play. And I was like, wow, what a stud that guy is. They're like, oh, he's going to Georgetown. He's a defenseman. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it was Brody Merrill. Yeah, yeah, I knew exactly who you were talking about. We actually, in 2000, with the Burnaby Lakers, Orangeville won the East. So we played against, against Brody in the, uh, in the 2000 Minto Cup. And uh, I still like to hold it over his head that, uh, you know, he, he, he never won one. And, uh, you know, for all the accolades that he has as one of the greatest uh, players to play, he never, he never got the Minto Cup. Yeah, there's a lot of great players that have never had a Minto Cup. There are, they are, there are. The, uh, you know, the, the the short time span you get to try and win one is uh, makes it one of the most coveted uh, trophies to to win, certainly in in Canada. There's a couple of Minto Cups, uh, one in the Monroe household. I know, I know, with the Coquitlam Adnacks. It's crazy how the Adnacks just like transitioned into the same dominant force that the Lakers were for so many years. They did. Um, the uh, when did that when did that start? Because I feel like the Adnex had been oh, nine. The team in the uh, when did it start? Oh nine, I think they went to or won their first Minto. I think right around then. And how many years was Del Bianco the goalie? Four, four, and they won three out of four in that time. Uh two out of four. He might have been five actually. You know what? I think he was five year junior. So he. They went when Wesley Berg was still on the team. They lost at Six Nations. And then the next year in 2016, they won it. 2017 lost to Six Nations again um, in the East. 2018 won it against Brampton. Um, and then maybe the year before that, he might have played too against uh, Six Nations. And how many years was Colin there? Four, uh, four. Four. Awesome. And I'm sure he loved the experience up there. Oh, man. I'll tell you, he did so much. Such great friends, such great memories. Um, that's like my biggest regret in life is I never got a chance to go do that. I think I would have just loved, 
I love box lacrosse so much. It's just such a great game. So uh, okay. you graduated from Duke and you end up um, getting into coaching, I think at Queens College. How'd you get into that? Yeah, so um, I was, uh, was a science major at Duke. I really, my original thought was I was gonna be a, a doctor and go to med school. So I took the pre-med track and was a biology major, chemistry minor. Um, and then I started to realize my senior year that I did not want to go into medicine, uh, that, you know, I wanted to, to continue playing and, uh, you know, maybe get into education. And that's really the reason I ended up at Queens University in Charlotte. Coach Pressler know, knew Jim Fritz, who was the head coach at Queens. It was, they were just starting a brand new program. Uh, it was the first year of the program. He was looking for a graduate assistant and, I was looking to further my education and get a master's degree in uh, in education, and then become a high school high school teacher and coach. Um, so that was that was my plan. And during my time at Queens, I was there for three years. Um, I did my student teaching down there my last year, and was a you know assistant coach. It was me and, and Coach Fritz there for those three years, um, and that's really where I developed a, a love for, for coaching. Um, you know, just I knew I liked to coach, but I didn't realize how much I would enjoy interacting with those guys, still being part of a team, being able to, you know, coaching is, coaching is teaching. You're just teaching a, a different subject than you would if you're teaching math or biology or something like that. And uh, I really, really enjoyed it. So when I finished up at Queens, I, uh, I went back to Calgary and worked for a sports school up there for one year. And I remember talking to Kevin Cassis, who was the head coach or was the assistant coach at Duke at that time and said, you know, I'm enjoying what I'm doing up here, but I'm missing coaching. And I sort of feel like if I stay up here for too long, that window will close. I won't have an in to get back into coaching at the college level and certainly at the division one level with how competitive it is. I don't know how I'll get back into it. And he said to me, well, maybe, you know, when I get my, when I get my first head coaching job, I'll bring you back as my assistant. Well, that happened six, six months later. And he took the, took the job at Lehigh as a 26 year old. Um, Amazing. He called me and said, Hey, are you ready to come back down? And I said, Oh man, I just got married. Uh, we just bought a house, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was a great opportunity. And I knew I wanted to get into coaching, uh, you know, as a career. And my wife is from Pennsylvania. So Lehigh is about an hour from where, when she, where she grew up. So I, uh, we came down, drove, uh, drove all of our belongings cross country a, a second time. And, uh, you know, started up at, at Lehigh. And it was, a uh, that was an, uh, an unbelievable coaching experience for a number of reasons one with Kevin and I being as as close as we were as friends and also being young coaches learning together he really included me and all the stuff that the decisions he was making and all the stuff he was doing to try and build that program and I think that really helped me when I got to St. Joe's because I felt like I'd been through that been through that process before but um, was there with him for four years uh, got our butts kicked, certainly the first couple of years. I think that's where I learned the most in terms of, you know, tactics and coaching. Uh, the Patriot League uh, at that time and still has some of the best coaches in the game. And uh, I remember watching film week after week after week saying, man, 
they're just better at this than we are. We got to coach this. We got to coach this. We're not ready for this. You know, you're just, you're learning so much on the fly. And I think it was a really great developmental time for me as a, as a defensive coach, for sure. And so then you moved on to St. Joe's in what, like 2012 or something? Yeah, I was hired there in August 2011. And that was, uh, my first season was, was 2012. And an interesting story about St. Joe's. So the very first Division I lacrosse game that I ever watched, I watched as probably a 15-year-old playing on a high school uh, travel team with the Edmonton Miners at St. Joseph's University. Um, one of the guys who was a few years older than me named Chris McIsaac was recruited to come down to St. Joe's. And so we came to the Philly area to play some, some local high schools on that trip. And, and St. Joe's had a, had a home game. So the first game that I ever watched on a college campus was at, at St. Joe's. And then whatever it was, 15, 15 years later, I was applying to be the head coach at St. Joe's. So just uh, another example of the, the small world that uh, the lacrosse uh, is. If you, if you don't mind, I'd like to hear a little bit about um, how you built the culture and continue to build the culture at St. Joe's. Um, as we all know, culture is just, it's the, it's the platform on which you build up upon, you know, for everything else. Um, and it's a job that's never over. And how are you looking at that now and how have you kind of evolved? Well, I think the one thing that you just said that really resonates with me in terms of your team culture, I think... Well, well, I do believe it is the, the, probably the most important thing with any program. I just feel like that's such a, such a trendy word right now. Yeah. Um, and uh, it almost, it, it, it gets talked about so much. Uh, sometimes people get tired of hearing about it. Um, so, but it is something that you have to constantly, constantly build on and uh, reiterate and just, manage at all times if you if you if you stop focusing on it and focusing on what your what your players are up to and how you're holding them accountable then then it does drift and uh, that's the one thing I've learned as a coach is no matter how good your culture may be one year that doesn't ensure it's going to be good the next year you have to constantly work to foster that in the group that you're in and to me it really comes down to, to two things number one you got to have clear expectations for your for your players in every, in every aspect of their lives. So the way they carry themselves on the field, off the field, you know, with their social responsibilities. But you gotta be very clear and, and talk about what that looks like, behavioralize it as best you can. And then you gotta hold them accountable. Uh, and that's really the two things that I think will help anyone build the culture that they're looking for is give them clear expectations uh, in terms of the values and the uh, behaviors you want them to, 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 to live by. And then you got to hold them accountable to those things without, without exception. So that's really the way I approach it. You know, every year we talk about what, uh, what a St. Joe's uh, student athlete and a St. Joe's lacrosse player, what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis uh, in terms of, you know, all the different uh, aspects of their lives. And, 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 and hopefully they understand that. And then, you just got to be vigilant in the way you hold them accountable, because if, if the accountability part slips, it doesn't matter how much you talk about culture. Uh, if they're not being held accountable to living up to those standards, then it starts to, it starts to slide. Totally. And it's such a slippery slope too, because you want to like, you want to be able to work with people. You want to be able to give people second shots, mm -hmm. you get close with these people. 
And at the same time, sometimes you have to make some really tough decisions. Um, how do you sort of view that as far as giving people chances um, and where you kind of draw the line? That's a great, great question. I think that's like, you know, one of the toughest parts of the job of the head coach. Like I got into coaching because I love working with kids that age. I, I, I love being a part of the team and trying to help people grow and, and just get better. Uh, I didn't get into it because I, I liked disciplining, uh, yeah. you know, 18 to 21 year old kids. That's, that's not the most enjoyable part of the job, but it's, it's part of what ensures your culture, you know, maintains itself. And um, I, I, it's hard to, hard to answer that question with any type of specifics, but I do agree that, you know, that in the end, these are kids and you hope that they're, they're still learning and developing as, as young men. And that's part of the job is to, is to help them become better young men and, one one mistake is shouldn't shouldn't uh that shouldn't that shouldn't be it you know it depends on the severity of the mistake but you know uh typically for, for me you know one mistake is is uh is a teachable moment uh you know you start making multiple multiple mistakes and it it becomes a trend and that's when it's like hey you're not getting it anymore uh the other thing too that i'll often mention to my guys is uh, you know, smart people, you know, learn from their own mistakes and really smart people learn from other people's mistakes. Uh, and so, you know, you, not everyone gets to make the same mistake. You know, if someone makes a mistake and we've talked about it with the team and, you know, uh, there's been good discussion and healthy discussion about it. And somebody else goes and does the same thing the next day. That's a whole different ball game, in my opinion, than, the guy who made the initial mistake because you had an opportunity to learn from it and you didn't. So um, I guess it's all, it's all taken into account on an individual basis. But uh, I think that in the end, if the expectations aren't clear, then it's hard to hold the kids accountable to those expectations. So it really comes down to clear expectations and then, you know, holding up that accountability piece. That's right. And then you just hope you don't get that Sunday morning phone call. <laughs> the, uh, Absolutely. That's the, every coach's, every coach's nightmare. <laughs> um, let's turn the page and talk a little bit about your defensive philosophy. Um, I would love to hear about, you know, kind of how it's evolved from the time you picked up the pole and shut off Brownie all the way till uh, through team Canada until now. Um, how do you look at it both individually and team wise? Um, okay. So one of the things that I that I felt like when when we were at when we were at Duke was, for the most part, we we had talented defenders, athletic guys who could who could cover their men. And back then, you know, Princeton was sliding, but everyone else was just saying, "Don't slide, don't get beat, don't slide, slide when you when you have to." And so that that would work for, you know, there wasn't the same parity there is today. That would work for. 80, 85% of the games you play, then you'd play someone who's just as athletic as you and you're going to need to slide and help. And if that wasn't a part of what you practiced every day, then you weren't necessarily good at it. Um, and so I felt like that was, you know, we experienced a bit of that at, at, at Duke when I played. And so when I got into coaching, I started to really, you know, say, hey, listen, you can always call off the dogs in terms of how quickly you're sliding to stuff and helping each other. But if you're not in a position to help, then you, 
you're not going to be there in time when you need to be. So I, I believe in, in a help oriented defense is the best type of defense. Um, I believe that being packed in tightly off ball and communicating there is, is the best way to play. Now, the best way to play changes based on what the opponent does. So if you're at an, a significant athletic advantage and the other team doesn't handle pressure that well, then you need to be able to dial it up and dial it down. Um, but, you know, being a, uh, a help oriented, you know, kind of seven versus six defense, we really talk about off ball positioning. I love uh, listening to your podcast with Jerry Byrne and talking about, you know, off ball positioning and hedging and positioning of your feet and, uh, you know, always being sort of lead shoulder pointed at the ball when you're in a help position. And, you know, I think he's, he's really sort of mastered the teaching of the off ball stuff. And, you know, you take big bits and pieces of, of what you, what you see from everybody. I mean, when, when I was at, when I was at, uh, at Lehigh, you'd play army who, who didn't want to slide to anybody and they just D up, which was hard to play against. And they'd really put pressure on you. And, you know, they'd kind of say, yeah, if you beat one of our guys, you're still going to beat our goalie. And, We'll live with that. And then uh, you play Bucknell uh, and they're, they're sliding everything. So yeah. if your stick work isn't good enough to move the ball quickly enough to, to capitalize on the fact that they're, they're sliding and doubling all the time, then you end up just passing the ball around the perimeter over and over and over again. And you can't, you can't find the opening. So uh, I've definitely seen both sides. I think that we sort of play somewhere, somewhere in the middle. Um, one of the other things that I, that I believe in is I believe playing a good amount of zone is, is very helpful. Uh, you know, we don't, some people, some coaches look at zone as like, I oh, only play zone if you're physically overmatched, you can't cover the other team. And I don't believe that at all. I think that you can play zone uh, in those situations, certainly when you can't cover the guys you're playing against. But I also think that playing against zone changes the mentality of the offensive player. And so, you know, if a team is a, a dodge first type of team and you play zone and now they're trying to be a pass first type of team for a couple possessions and then you go back to playing man to man two possessions later and then they come down and, you know, maybe their, their second midfield isn't a good passing group, so you're going to zone them, or they're not a good shooting group, so you're going to zone them. I just, I really believe in jumping between man-to-man -man and zone to keep the other team's offense uh, on their toes and just not give them the same look every time they, uh, they come down. Um, you had asked about, you know, individual, uh, individual players and teaching of individual players. Um, What's the best way to answer that question? Maybe you could ask a couple more questions. Yeah, about a little that. more specifically. Um, so, I mean, we, we kind of touched on this a little bit, you know, when, you, when we were talking about the fact that defensemen that have great stick work, um, that are really skilled, capable of playing offense, um, oftentimes become um, the best defensemen simply because they can do everything they can handle, but they can also use their stick for leverage and check and knock balls down and all of that. How does, how does that sort of impact the way you try to develop their people's on ball and off ball defense? That, that's a really, that's a good way to, to kind of lead into this. So, um, and this is, this might be a, an overstatement, but when, when you're, when you're coaching at Duke or Virginia or Maryland or Hopkins or Syracuse, you, you can get the defenseman who is 
six foot one, six foot three, right? Notre Dame, six foot one, six foot three, athletic, has a great stick, can do all those things. When you're coaching in the middle, you know, at Lehigh and then at St. Joe's, where you're where you're going to have to develop your players, there's usually one of those areas that is that is not there. So you might get the six foot uh, two athletic kid, but his stick work is really raw. Or you might get the five foot eight to five foot ten kid who's got the uh, the, the amazing stick work, but he doesn't have the size and strength uh, of of you know the bigger defensemen. Uh, the, the, so when I first started recruiting, I always would take sort of size and strength over slickness. And now, now I have really realized that you, you need both and you can't yeah. have, can't have three close defensemen that can't wheel and deal the ball. You know, you might be able to have one guy out there. Who's your, who's your grunt, who's your, your whack and slash beat you up, cover off ball type of guy, but you can't have three guys like that. Um, and so you know, I think it's a blend. You're going to have to have some guys who, who can handle the ball and spark transition and pick up ground balls. Uh, I have had, you know, great success over the last couple of years converting some, some short sticks to, to pole because they naturally have that stick work ability. And if they have a, a bit of that defensive mindset, then it's an easy transition for them. You know, this year, our, uh, our backup LSM was someone who'd been in and out of our lineup as a, as a short stick D midi. And, uh, and this year he was going run for run with our first pole after giving him the pole. It was like, it was like he grew three inches and put on 20 pounds when we gave him the pole. It was, uh, you know, he was athletic and fast. And now he had a, an LSM who was athletic and fast and uh, great between the lines. So um, I think that that's helped a little bit. But I think in recruiting, we've got to recruit a blend of those guys. You, you, you hope that you find guys who are willing to work at the stick work piece. Uh, I have found that if you don't have a great stick by the time you get to college, you're, you're not going to have a great stick in college. You know, it's like, you're, you're not going to jump two levels. If you're, if you're good, you can, you can go to be, you know, better than good, but not exceptional. If you're very good, you can get to exceptional. If you're average, you can get to good, but you can't jump two levels in college with the, the stick work of your defensemen. So um, try and recruit guys who can handle the ball perfect world you got you got some length so you've got a couple guys out there roaming around who are six foot one to six foot three uh you know with some length who can cover ground knock down passes and just take up space you've got some guys who can who can cover that that short water bug uh slippery type of attackman that everybody seems to have nowadays and you've got somebody out there who can who can bang with the, the 200 pound lean on you type of attackman that you see as well and you know, with with the, the shot uh, with the shot clock era and the twenty second clearing clock, you know, it's just more important than ever to be able to get that thing up and out. Absolutely. And, you know, you just can't win if you can't clear it. And all of a sudden, everybody drools over the six foot four cover guy, uh, but it doesn't do much good if you're giving up bad goals off ball or if you're if you're giving the ball back. We uh, we talk a lot, and I think this is something that uh, one of my former assistants. Uh, Michael Keating brought over from working with uh, Coach Murphy at Penn, this idea of uh, the 1763 rule or 1783 rule, where, you know, if everyone covers the ball, you know, a sixth of the time, then you're covering the ball 17% of the time. And, uh, you know, that's all well and good, but what are you doing the 83% of the time 
is really going to make the difference between whether or not our, our defense is a good defense or not. So yeah. uh, you need to have smart off ball guys as well as guys who can cover the ball. You know, if you're, you're not, it's just, you're not going to make a big enough impact in the game in that 17% of the time, if you're screwing up the other 83%. It's pretty easy to evaluate stick skills out there. You know, uh, it's pretty easy to evaluate athleticism, but how do you evaluate the 83%? Um, of being smart off the ball it 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 takes a lot more evaluation uh meaning you have to watch a player a lot more to figure out if he's uh if he's going to be good at that part that's one of the things where uh you know we're recruiting a kid right now who's actually a midfielder uh he's six foot four athletic but he's a midfielder and we've told him we'll recruit you as a as a defenseman he's a basketball player you know, uh, and I, I've watched his basketball film and he understands off ball positioning, anticipating the movement of the ball, working through pick and roll, reading a double and flying into the into the extra man off the double. And so you can evaluate it by looking at, at other sports. Sometimes when you get to these recruiting tournaments and you're watching the kids for just really short periods of time, short possessions, that can be really really challenging to evaluate but you know you can once you've honed in on a couple of guys that you think have the athletic and and skill attributes that you that you appreciate then you can watch them maybe a second time and now you're just watching how they move off ball you know do they anticipate the movement of the ball do they anticipate the movement of their teammates are they are they around the ball more often than not and uh you know are they communicating with the other guys um but I do think that can be taught. You have to have some good instincts to get better at it. But I do think that part can be taught. Do you think it can be taught and you can skip two levels? Or do you think it's a one-level deal? Uh, that's a really good question. For an inexperienced player who plays multiple sports, I think you can probably skip two levels. Yeah. For someone who just – you know, they just don't get it. They just want to cover the ball. They want to slide to the ball. They want to be on the ball. It's probably a one-level one jump. They just – you need some kids that grew up playing some monkey in the middle. Yeah, seriously. Seriously. Scrape back and get, get your hat back. Yeah. Um, back to zone real quick. You, you talked about that, and I, I had a question, but I didn't want to interrupt. Um, my question on zone is how do you feel like if you, if you work on zone a lot, how do you feel it helps you develop your defensive team and players in that environment that's different than just your classic man-to-man, -man, even though there's similarities between man and zone anyways when you slide? Well, I think you can develop your zone principles in a lot of the unsettled work that you do and yep. the uneven stuff. So you don't have to just work on playing zone to be better at, at those things. And Honestly, playing zone is all about off-ball positioning, even more so than than man-to-man. -man. So, you know, you can get some of that in the drills that you work on without just, you know, playing half-field zone defense. So, uh, I think, again, depending on how much zone you're going to play, you want to you want to gauge your uh, your practice time accordingly. Um, we probably play 60-40, 70-30 man-to-zone. Um, in breaking down the numbers last year after 2018, we said, you know, we're, we're just more effective in the zone, especially with the shot clock. We should be playing 60-40 uh, based on what the, 
the the breakdown of our you know success rate playing zone was uh but uh um i i do think that you got to teach your kids to be good overall defenders if they're smart overall defenders and they're they understand off ball positioning and you know how to like you said scrape back into a gap and and play two men all the time you know whether you're playing man or zone the the greatest attribute of a defender is their ability to play two guys so yeah. whether you're 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 the slide guy and you're playing you know your man that you're sliding off of and the ball or you're the fill guy who's playing you know your, your man and your fill or your two slide responsibility you know other than the guy on the ball everybody's got to play two um so if you approach teaching your your team defense with that sort of mechanic then zone doesn't seem that zone doesn't seem that challenging the interesting thing that that i struggled with in coaching zone that i want to hear your opinion on is i always felt the need to match up really well to to the formation when it when if you take the principle that you just said where everybody needs to play two Sometimes playing two can be playing the ball and the next person rather than just committing yourself to the ball. And I feel like that's such a nuance and an interesting thing that I want to hear you talk about. Uh, yeah. So I think that's really the, the key to playing zone is that you're, you're eating up dodging space, but still allowing, uh, you know, still playing your man adjacent to the ball. You know, to, to, to me playing most zones, the most common zones are, are, tightly packed adjacent help. And, you know, if, if one guy helps to the ball, then the other five guys need to be able to react to him. Um, you're, we, we will, depending on how a team has been scouted, you will adjust how your zone looks, how you kind of match up on the perimeter, whether you're going to have your base guys play wings, or you're going to have to tilt your zone slightly. But in yeah. the end, it's, it's not that different than an adjacent sliding man to man. Right. Um, the difference lies in the, the offensive approach to the zone. Uh, meaning yeah. you play zone and there's two ways to attack a zone. You either attack it with ball movement and overloads, or you attack it by dodging the zone and, and drawing doubles. And so when you, when you, when you scout teams, they tend to do one or the other. If yeah. they're going to run overloads, then they get really predictable. Whether you carry from the wing or you carry from four or you carry from X and roll a guy off, it's all the same. The zone can treat it all the same. You can roll with it, match it, and wait for them to go back to their shape. You know, the cutter's going to come from the backside. They can shift back into your shape. Where it becomes more challenging to play zone, in my opinion, is when teams are like, all right, there's no matchups. My best guy can dodge a short stick from the wing. And now all of a sudden you have to help adjacent and gaps open up. So it, to me, it just depends on the other team's mentality for how they attack the zone. But in the end, what's going to make it effective is your, your adjacent guy's ability to, to, to eat dodging space and be able to get back to their man. Right. All right. Switching gears. Uh, what's your offensive philosophy at St. Joe's? Uh, for the most part, we want to be like a, a, a motion offense uh, not in the traditional sense, you know, the, uh, well, first off, before we get to that, you know, everyone's, everyone says they want to play fast. We want to play fast. You know, that's been a major emphasis for us over the last two years where we've seen the most growth in our, 
in our team's ability has been, you know, maybe taking some more risks in transition and, and, uh, and just kind of judging the success rate of those opportunities versus your success rate in the half field. It's silly not to take some chances in transition. Um, and you got to live with the extra turnovers. And I remember, you know, watching your alma mater play a few years back and, and listening to coach Tiffany talk about, listen, you know, we, we want to get up and down, but as a coach, you're going to have to live with the turnovers. And I think that opened up a lot of people's uh, view on things, you know, what, what really is best for us? Are we best when we get our, our six best guys out there and just beat them down in the half field? Are we best with, you know, taking some more chances in transition, but, you know, giving up some, some turnovers, our turnover rate the last few years has been higher than it's ever been. But I also feel like we're scoring more goals in the, in the transition game and being less reliant on the, on the six on six. So uh, in general, offensively, um, you know, what's the best way to put it? We want to share the ball. We want to be uh, an attack first type of team. We do not, uh, we do not shy away from dodging poles over the last few years. Our attack has really been the driving force behind our team, meaning not just in productivity, but in getting the, getting the party started. A lot of teams will focus on midfield dodging to get things going. You know, we're not going to concede the attack matchups until you give us a reason to concede the attack matchups. Some of our most talented players and, over the years have been our attackmen and we're going to let them go at their guys. Um, we, we kind of run a, a mix of what might be referred to as a, a pairs style of offense right now. Um, I think it's a pretty common offense uh, where you've sort of got four above and, and two below. And, you know, it's not, it's not two pairs on one side, two on the other, but it's a four man motion above and, and two guys on the pipes that had been our base offense for the last two seasons. And then we've sort of morphed into with the number of, of attackmen that we've had who deserved minutes on the field. We've, we've run a lot of some of the big little stuff, different formations out of the, the big little stuff and the, and the pick game behind. And then a one four one wing dodging offense that has a lot of freedom with the off ball guys. I think having played against Penn state this year, giving the, the off ball three more opportunity to, to talk to each other and be creative and unpredictable in the way they're going to move versus moving a straight triangle rotation has been something we've been experimenting with as well. How much would you say your background in box across influences your philosophy on offense? Um, uh, I think that it definitely, it does. Uh, but I do think the games are, are different. They're sort of, there's bits and pieces that you can incorporate, you know, utilizing some of the, the two man stuff behind the goal and in the wings, I think certainly is influenced from the box lacrosse part of things. But I think when you have, it, it depends on the makeup of your team. Um, yeah. If you have more field style players, you got some big athletic downhill dodging midfielders. When those guys play, they're going to play a more traditional type of offense. When you have, you know, right now we have, a Canadian named uh, Levi Anderson, who was a freshman for us, who is, I mean, he's your typical left-handed Canadian. He's really slick on the wing. He likes to drive his man, lean on his man. You know, if you can rub, rub him off screens and stuff like that, they try and double. He's, he's got the dexterity to, to flip it behind his back or kind of like 
you know, wrap it around the double team to the open man. We haven't had those guys in the past, so we haven't done a whole lot of that type of action. But I think with some of the personnel that we have on our team right now, we're going to see going to see more of that. The other thing that I like about the the the, the, the sort of pairs or the you know the, the two man game stuff is is I, I like I think I think open sets are challenging to defend. Uh, I do. I think when you when when you're always giving someone uh, giving a defense someone in the crease to slide off, that can be very easy, um, easy to slide, easy to fill. And now you're kind of like, all right, you got to beat us in two passes, or you got to rope a through ball. Um, I think with some of the the open sets where you're forcing guys to slide adjacent and then read that skip on the backside or dodge a rotation on the backside, I think that's pretty effective stuff when you have the personnel to do it. Yeah, I agree. I think open sets are really interesting. I was just watching some Villanova film from a year or two ago, and they seem to never have I, – I don't even know what they're running, to be honest with you. It's like I, I don't either. I've watched them play a lot. I, I uh, you know, you sort of see – you see some consistent movements and then you'll go like three possessions in a row and see nothing that's the same. Yeah. And there's really no crease except for every now and then they'll just roll somebody in as a mirror, but that's it. That's it. Like, yeah. Um, and uh, a guy you used to coach that uh, all time, the goat, John Grant Jr. just took the job at Hopkins and, and he ran a really interesting open set. I watched that Duke game this year and was really interested by that. I thought yeah, it's really excited for, uh, for junior. I know he, uh, you know, has been coaching out in Colorado for a long time and then, you know, had jumped into the college ranks and we got to work with him a little bit with uh, Team Canada the uh, in, in 2014 where he was not permitted to play. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think he's going to do a great job. I think he's he has a very creative mind. You're going to see some different stuff, some stuff that probably no one else is, is doing or has done before. Uh, and I think that's part of what, what makes him such a – such a such a great talent as a player is the creativity that he has. And, uh, you know, I think he's not afraid to try new stuff either. No doubt. Which I think is a really interesting conversation. How open are you as a coach to trying new stuff? Some people are afraid. Some people are like, you know what? It makes sense to me. I'm going to try it. I've gotten a lot more open with that stuff. You know, so – so originally, uh, you know, kind of just generally speaking, I, I have been a, a conservative defensive coach where, you know, we're going to force, we're going to wait for you to make a mistake. We're not going to make a mistake to allow you to beat us. But I also think there's some value in your players seeking out opportunities to cause some turnovers, which is something that had been totally foreign to me over the last two years. We spent a lot more time talking about, great times to double, you know, great times to stay in doubles. And that's something that my assistant, Mike Horowitz, really has, has, has bugged me about that, that I had never really liked. So listen, you do that, they're going to flip it to this guy. They're going to get an easy one. You know, I don't, I don't want them to get any easy ones. But I also think that there's a, an, a, an excitement level and, a, a, you know, an opportunistic level that your players need to play with to uh, – that can change momentum in games. So that's been something that I've been been definitely open to. We've we've made some drastic changes to the transition game that I had never done before uh, when Coach Scott Meehan joined us. And I said, all right, let's try it. You know, we're not good enough not to, to, to just do the same thing everybody else does. You know, we're not good enough with our talent level uh, to just, just be the same as everybody else and hope that we're going to get different results. So – I would say that I'm I'm very uh, 
very eager to try new things. I, I said to my, uh, I said to coach me in last summer uh, after last season, which was not, you know, 2019, which was a okay year for us. Certainly not what we, uh, what we had hoped for or what we want to uh, our seasons to look like. I said, listen, you know, everybody's doing the same thing. You know, you watch a team have success with something and then you know, the next coach tries to put it in with their guys. I want you to, to try and come up with something new and different, something no one else has done. And let's, let's try and let's try and be on the front end of that instead of just, you know, doing the things that other people have done. Have we done that yet? No, we're still running a lot of copycat stuff that we've seen other people do, but I, I definitely think that it's something that, that we want to, we want to do and want to be creative. I, I, I believe that that's the number one thing about offense is, the, the unpredictability. If, if you're predictable, you can be defended. Um, if you're unpredictable, you know, especially with the amount of coaching that goes on defensively, like you coach your guys for all these situations, all these situations, right? When they do this, we're going to do this. When they do this, we're going to do this. All right. When you see this shape or this guy here, this is how we're going to react. And all of a sudden they see something that, uh-oh, coach never walked through this with us. And then they kind of slow down. They're like, yeah. You know, hold on. I gotta, I gotta figure this out. Uh, and I think that that in itself, that slow down there, that extra thinking that they end up doing. Uh, if you, if you can, as an offensive coach, create as much of that as possible, then, then the defense is, is going to have a rough day. Totally. I also think that by doing that, by trying to be not different, just to be different, but different to have an advantage, but also it can create an identity mm -hmm. for your program for your defense for your offense and I think that's really important too have you thought about that concept at all yeah I think it, I 100% agree with what you just said it's not like you want to be different just to be different there's a you know there's there's way smarter guys out there coaching the game than than, than I am I don't I don't want to try and reinvent the game uh, but I think if you can take bits and pieces of things that have been successful in one offense or defense and, and mesh it with something that you do that gives you a little bit of a different identity. I think that's really cool stuff. And pressure, you know, you're talking about double teaming and how it can change a game. And we all know that pressure does change things and that yeah. pressure people will turn it over under pressure. And we all know that pressure is a little bit of a risk at times too, but it works time and again in every sport. Mm -hmm. And um, I was curious about your thoughts. I guess that's kind of the road you were talking about going down that road um, with double teaming, but is how you feel about that as far as pressure goes? I think pressure uh, is that, that, that stress that you can put on the other team over the course of a game, if you're capable of doing it, can be a major difference maker. Um, I think that, you know, again, coaching at Lehigh for four years and having to deal with the Bucknell 10 man ride. As soon as I became a head coach there, we got a 10 man ride. It is the most annoying thing to play against ever. You waste time at practice, you know, planning for it, talking about adjustments you're going to make, and then you might not even see it, you know, maybe see it once or twice. And it invokes that, that little bit of panic from the other team. Um, you know, so I think that's part of it. I think again, in the same, in the same thread that you want to, play man and zone every game if you're playing man and you're playing zone and you're 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 showing an invert zone defense you're showing a regular man-to-man -man defense uh, against the invert you're 10 man riding you're doing all this different stuff then then you create a bit of an identity and you become a real nuisance to play and I think you're hard to prepare for when you have that many layers of what you do so uh 
Now, the pressure, again, I, I am pressure averse in just my general defensive like uh, makeup. Yeah. Uh, I, not that I don't want us to put pressure on the ball. We're not going to just sit back in there under 13 yards, but uh, I like pressure early in possessions. And then I like pressure late in possessions. Yeah. Uh, pressure consistently throughout possessions, I think is, is hard to keep up. So it's more situational pressure for me than it is like, listen, we're just going to chase you around all game. A few years ago, we went down and played, uh, we played Duke and, uh, we were not ready for the pressure that they exerted. I mean, it was like they played you to the boundaries all over the field. And we, we were like, our guys were just running around like chickens with their head cut off and couldn't, couldn't run our offense. We couldn't, you know, uh, it was, it was tough to clear the ball. It was just like, they're all over us all the time. Now they had an athletic advantage over us as well, uh, which certainly played into their, their favor. I think it's it's it becomes a real challenge to pressure teams when anyone that you're pressuring has the ability to run by you. Um, now it could force them into bad decisions, force them to into playing faster than they're capable of playing. But if your plan is to pressure and they're capable of playing with that pressure, th- then you're in trouble. <laughs> True, but that's also why um, I did a webinar once, and one of the chapters was pressure every day <laughs> because. You better because when you when you face pressure, you know you may not want to do it defensively on your on your own team, but but you're gonna face it. Yeah, no doubt. We'll, we'll do we'll do exercises at practice where we say, all right, everybody, if you're adjacent to the ball, you're playing your man all the way to the midline, you know, and just our our offense needs to get used to this. You know, do stick work drills with defensive guys in there, putting pressure on the perimeter so the guys get used to being able to you know, drive their man in and make their man respect them in order to be able to step away and move the ball to the adjacent, uh, the adjacent offensive player. So I think that it is really important that you practice dealing with it. Yeah, for sure. Make them collapse. Um, I want to go back to a thing you said about how you like to have your attack dodge. Um, I yep. love that. And I think it's really smart. And um, I wanted to ask you just specifically how you develop that. And then also how much is just making that a part of the way you play allows them to develop. I think it's the latter. I think it's making it a part of what you play. You know, for for a long time, for seven years, I had uh, Dan Keating, who was my uh, associate head coach and and offensive coordinator, and he was really, really excellent at developing offensive talent. I mean, he's a great teacher. He believes in sort of strict fundamentals of the game and. And he would really, really work with our attack men to develop those guys. And I think that sort of identity came from just how uh, smart those guys were carrying the ball, how, uh, how good their fundamentals were. And then it was like, okay, now, now you have the skills you need. Uh, get after those guys. And uh, um, I think that was a big part of it. Yeah, I think so, too, because I think everyone's like, get it to the shorts, get it to the matchup. Your whole offense is geared towards drawing slides, and you know you've got a better chance of drawing a slide against a shorty. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that you're just not really going to be great at dodging poles because you just don't dodge poles. I think it's, it's all about, like, uh, you know, you promote them, you empower your attackmen to go at your, their guys 
And all of a sudden that, that almost like gives them confidence. They're like, yeah, you know what? I am the leading scorer on the team and I am the best player, uh, you know, most skilled guy typically. Like I'm not going to concede the matchup because he's got a pull. He's going to prove that he can stop me first. And when you, when you promote those guys like that and really, you know, empower them to, to go at their men, then all of a sudden, you know, I think you almost like you, you flip the script on the defense. The defense is like, okay, you know, we got to D up the shorts and slide and recover up top. And we want to be slow to go to our poles and whatever else. And all of a sudden you're just attacking the poles. Right. And, you know, those guys are like, whoa, uh, we're not used to this. You know, these guys are coming at us and, uh, you know, they're, uh, we're having to, to help with short sticks and things like that. It, 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 it just changes it, it flips the script from what they're used to playing. You know, a lot of teams don't want to slide to their poles from behind the goal. Right. And if, if they can prove that they don't need to early in the game, then maybe you adjust what you're doing and maybe you, you bring a, a short stick back behind to maybe rub a guy off or have to force them to navigate a little bit of traffic back there and still go at the poles. Um, and then if they can defend that, then maybe say, okay, now we'll, now we'll test your shorts. Yeah. Uh, but, I think it's all about the mindset of the attackmen and promoting them to, to be aggressive. And make the defense live up to the 17. Yeah, exactly. Right, because it's just based on the average. I mean, a lot of times it's, it's not even that much. But, you, you know, the point is people are, people are hiding defensemen in there all the time that, you know, they just know aren't really going to get dodged very much. Yeah, absolutely. 100% agree with that. All right, last topic. I want to talk a little bit about recruiting. Um, yep. I want to hear your philosophies. We have touched on that on the defensive side already, um, but I wanted to hear your opinions on what you're looking for. And also in the context of letting people know like where your program is at right now, where you're, what you're excited about, a little state of the union while you're talking about who you're looking for. I'm John Canaris, founder of Oxia Time, a watch company specializing in university branded watches. Before I fell in love with watches, I fell in love with lacrosse. Maybe you've heard of the air gate, well, that was me and goal that day. We may not have won the national championship, but we did win the Ivy League that year and two years before. The first time, we got a ring that we never wore. The second time, we got a watch that while it had great sentimental value, the quality didn't match the significance of our achievements or the memories we created. Ever since then, I've looked for a watch with the design and quality that would live up to my experiences at Penn. After 30 years of looking and not finding what I wanted, I decided to build it myself. At Axia Time, we create Swiss-made automatic watches with stylish designs and quality befitting the universities we represent. Premium watches without the premium price. Check us out at axiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. Sure. Um, so th there has been a, a very, you know, concerted push from the university level and the athletic department at St. Joe's that, that we want to build a lacrosse program that can compete at the national level. And that has started, you know, five, seven years ago, but, you know, really it's, it's, it's taken off the last few years. Um, you know, we went from having eight scholarships to being fully funded. You know, we've got plans in place for, you know, facility expansion over the next three to five years, new stadium, all of this type of stuff. So the infrastructure is, is going to be there to support a program that can hopefully compete for the NCAA tournament on a, on a regular basis. Um, in terms of recruiting, you know, that's, we, 
we want guys that want to be difference makers, uh, guys that have a chip on their shoulder who want to go somewhere maybe different and do it for the first time or second time or help kind of put the program on the map. And while I've been the coach there now for, for nine years, we're, we're still looking for those types of players because we haven't, we haven't got there yet. Um, in terms of, you know, the, 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 the attributes that we're looking for in recruits, we have, uh, we have six kids committed in our 21 class with, with the way that, uh, with the way that the, the, the NCAA ruling is going to impact players coming back, I anticipate that we'll have you know, anywhere from three to five guys come back each year for the next four years. So instead of taking 12 or 14 guys in a class, we're probably going to take more like, you know, nine to 11. So the classes are going to be a little bit smaller, but we do still have, have room left in our 21 class. And uh, to be honest, I think we found some of the best talent in our 20 class in the second half of the recruiting process for those, for those guys. So uh, we do still have room really uh, at every position other than uh, a goaltender in that, in that class. What, what are we looking for when we talk about the types of, of player, uh, the attributes? Uh, number one thing for me is competitive spirit. Uh, you don't have to be a big guy to have a huge, uh, heart and uh, competitive spirit. And I think that that's one of the things that's beautiful about lacrosse is, you know, there is no, there is no specific, uh, you know, shape you have to be to be a good lacrosse player. Uh, it's really about, you know, number one, your competitive spirit, and then number two, your, your skill level. Um, you know, obviously there's an athletic component that you have to have to be able to, 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 you know, get through the rigors of Division One lacrosse. But I think if you have a huge heart and you're incredibly competitive, uh, then, then the other pieces will fall into place for you. Uh, the next part is, uh, is the athleticism and the skill. And those is kind of a blend, right? You know, there's going to be guys that are super athletic and raw that you're going to have to develop their, you're going to have to develop their skill level. And there's going to be guys that are, that are super skilled, but, you know, their athleticism is going to need to be developed. Uh, so there, there's, again, it's a, sort of a spectrum on, on, on both of those ends. Um, and then, you know, the last piece, I think, is the, uh, you know, the, the toughness element, uh, just, you know, how, uh, and I, when I think about toughness, physical toughness is not what I'm talking about. Uh, I think it's just their ability to endure uh, challenges, uh, fight through adversity, and I think, how do you read that? You read that in a recruiting scene with like, what do guys look like at the end of the day when it's hot and it's their third game? Are they still getting excited for their teammates? Are they still playing hard and scrapping at that point in the day? Uh, as you know, from, from coaching Division One lacrosse as long as you did and, you know, being in, uh, being in Denver and having to play in all sorts of elements, it, it's uh, the, the lacrosse season and the year is a challenge. You need guys who are, who are mentally tough enough to continue battling through all of that. And you got to love it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that comes with the competitive spirit. Like, yeah. you know, do you just play lacrosse? Cause that's what you've done. And that's, you know, that's kind of what you think you should do. I'll ask recruits all the time, you know, why do you think you want to be a division one lacrosse player? And the, the answers that you get are, are usually pretty telling. Well, my friends play and, you know, uh, I always thought that I should go and play in college. Like, really? You, you, you want to be a Division I athlete because your friends play? I mean, 
that better not be why you want to play. You better love it. You better, uh, you better wake up every morning wanting to find ways to get better, wanting to find your way to the weight room, wanting to find your way to the wall, thinking about the game, you know, eat, sleep, and, and breathing it, or you ain't going to make it. And I do think that we, we see a lot of kids that think they want to play at the highest level, but don't really know what that means. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think it's why you, you see recruiting classes growing the way that they have, uh, because there's lots of talented players out there. They're just, they're not all of those guys who are talented enough to play division one lacrosse love to do it. Yeah, there's no doubt. And everyone loves to be recruited. Everybody loves to be good at something and have people mm -hmm. tell you you're good, but it's very different when you're there and you don't really feel like practicing and, you know, you'll, like you said, you'll never make it if you don't love it. You got to love to be there and love the practice and, you know, really love the grind. Absolutely. Um, the last topic uh, here in recruiting, uh, the uh, question I want to ask on this topic is just with, you referenced this, you're going to have three to five, you know, graduate kids coming back or potentially transfers. You mentioned parity earlier in this conversation also where, you know, the, the parity is, is already been, you know, on an upward trend for 15 years. It continues. This is going to make the parity in my opinion, just that much stronger. How excited are you about that? Because I think it's going to be really exciting. And you know, a lot of people are talking about the transfer portal and, you know, how busy that thing is. And, you know, the accumulation of assets for the top programs, trying to grab the top uh, transfer portal guys. The thing is, there's, there's also a lot of guys who, who, who maybe for whatever reason, they battled injuries or they just weren't, they just weren't playing well enough. They weren't good enough to play at a certain place who are looking for, for new life and fresh air at the next place. And, you know, you're seeing guys who, uh, who enter the transfer portal at some, some name brand schools who you're like, well, why is he leaving? Well, he, he looks at the roster. He looks at who's coming back at his position says, man, I think that I might be better off getting a fresh start somewhere else. So you're just seeing, a lot of a lot of movement right now and uh you know if if i had more room on my roster i'd probably be investigating it a little bit uh, a little bit further we were you know we're going to take i think we've taken three three transfers at this point i just with uh with the seniors that i have coming back i can't i can't really entertain too many more right. uh, but there's certainly guys out there there's there's division three guys out there and division two guys out there who scored you know 150 points at their respective school who I know for a fact could, could help division one teams and, and, and they're going to pop up out of nowhere and be all league guys for certain teams. So it's really uh it's really an interesting time. It is. It's uh, these next four years are going to be more competitive than ever. And, and I think it's exciting too, because I think the coaching is going to matter even more. I agree. I agree. It's uh, uh, we, we had a really good team this year at St. Joe's. It was a crushing blow for it to end. You know, we were five and two, we had wins over uh, wins over Delaware, wins over Drexel, win over a really really talented Providence team, uh, lost to Penn State and Penn, most recently to Penn, 13-12 uh, in a a goal where they scored to go ahead uh, with like 40 seconds left or 17 seconds left, I can't remember, and uh, you know we had a lead in the fourth quarter, so it was. Uh, we, we have a, we had a really talented team. And the thing that I'm most excited about is we, we have everyone coming back. 
everyone who played for us this year, with the exception of, of one guy, will be back on our team next year. Uh, so I'm, I'm just hoping that we can we can get back out on the field in late August, early September, and and, and put it on uh, put it on uh, repeat because I was really really excited about where our team was going this year. Awesome stuff. Taylor, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. It was great to talk lacrosse with you, and good luck. Thanks, Jamie. Always, always a pleasure talking with you. All the best to you and your family, and uh, uh, enjoy the uh, the summer here. Will do. You too. Thanks, man.